All right, something a little bit different today on War Stories. This was a live Q&A on TikTok where I was answering questions coming in through the chat. So we hit on quite a few topics, things like what if Germany hadn't invaded the Soviet Union during the Second World War? Where exactly was Germany's navy during that conflict? And dazzle camouflage used in World War I. Hope you enjoy. Starting to put something together right now around Dunkirk. Had a pretty cool, a couple pretty cool questions. Just getting at that big hypothetical question, kind of one of the big hypotheticals in World War II. What happens if the Dunkirk evacuations fail? Dynamo, right? I think it was called Operation Dynamo. Yeah, Dynamo. So in 1940, the British, French, and a couple other Allied countries were pushed up right to the uh, to the English Channel and miraculously evacuated, right? And it was over 300,000 total troops, about 200,000 British. And uh, the question came in of, would the British have surrendered if Dunkirk hadn't, uh, hadn't taken place? And that's a, that's a really interesting one, right? Like, you can't write off 200,000 troops in any conflict. Like, losing 200,000 is a major, major number. Um, but at the same time, the British kind of had the advantage in the air and at sea. So Germany was going to hit a wall when they hit the English Channel anyways. But long story short, I'm diving into that one here uh, pretty soon. I'm excited. I think it's going to be one of those where people have kind of strong opinions on both sides. And that's fine. That's honestly a lot of fun to see in the comments section. Shrimp Daddy, Black Hearts, what's going on? That War Thunder guy. Appreciate that. World War II is your favorite favorite time to study there. Yeah, same for me. I uh, can kind of go down rabbit holes here in, in each direction, but World War II is definitely at the top of the list. The ball. If you were Germany, how would you have planned the invasion of Britain? I think the only way they could have pulled that off is with patience. If Germany had, first off, maybe not attacked in the east and spent a little more time building up their navy, building up their air force, and not gone after Britain so quickly during the Battle of Britain, if they would have waited until they really had the resources to do that. Because that was part of the problem with Operation Sea Line, right? They they put this plan together, but realistically it wasn't ever on the table. They weren't going to be able to get across the English Channel. So if there had been the ability for Germany to be more patient, I think that's what possibly could have turned the tide. But still, um, you know, you're asking at that point, you're asking German leadership to be something that they're not. There was a little bit of sporadic decision-making. Um, there were some irrational decisions, especially when we're talking about attacking the Soviet Union You know, just about a year later. So I think asking for patience and to be very, very deliberate in an attack across the English Channel is what we'd have to ask of Germany to be successful there. And they just didn't really show that at the highest levels. We're talking about kind of top-down driven decisions. Shrimp Daddy, do I think the Battle of Britain would have gone differently if the Germans kept hitting military targets? Yeah, so that's one of the big issues during that fight is that they they started hitting cities a little bit, you know, away from airfields and uh, and some of the well away from airfields, military installations, and anti-aircraft batteries, and started shifting more towards cities, 
kind of the idea of, you know, honestly, the allies were doing it too, right? We were, the strategic bombing campaign was heavily focused on industry, but industries in the middle of cities. I think it had the possibility to go differently, but again, I'm not sure possible, I guess is what I'd say possible. I don't think that's a real clear cut answer. I think it would have given Germany a better chance of maybe succeeding during the battle of Britain. But at the end of the day, they, I mean, the Brits put up quite a fight during that, uh, that, that couple month period there. So definitely a mistake for Germany. Not sure it would have been enough to, to change the, uh, change the entire battle. Yeah, you're saying bounty hunter. Collateral damage, always a problem. Yeah. And that's something I want to get into a little bit here as well before too long is the strategic bombing. More in Europe than in the Pacific because we did start bombing Japanese cities a little later in the war, but for the bulk of the time in the Pacific, it was hitting islands, fortifications. There were still civilians there. Don't mean to downplay downplay that, but the bombing of German cities in Europe was was devastating. Well, not just German. Every every country in Europe was getting hit. We killed a lot of French civilians in the lead up to D Day. I mean, I think Eisenhower was briefed that upwards of like three or four hundred thousand French civilians could die just in the bombing, getting ready for D-Day. As we targeted bridges, we, as the United States and the Allies targeted bridges, railheads, um, marshalling yards, all of that stuff, they're all right around population centers. But one of the big myths in World War II has to do with the bomb site, the Norden bomb site. And I want to get a little bit more into that, but the data is all over the place. So the idea when this came out was that you could drop a bomb pretty accurately from 20 plus thousand feet. But in practice, on the battlefield or in the skies over Germany or France or you know any occupied country, they were just not that accurate. I mean, we're talking like if you were targeting a football stadium, sometimes an entire bomb run, tens of thousands of bombs, one might fall in that stadium. So they did the trick in terms of leveling cities, but in terms of actually targeting like military installations, it just wasn't the case. But anyways, the data behind that is all sorts of finicky. So I'm trying to figure out how to put that into a short clip, a short video and call out some numbers, but there's just so many of them. I'm struggling a little bit there. Marcus trying to join. Won't let you. I don't know. We'll figure that out, man. Current Ukraine situation. I'm going to be honest. I'm not super spun up on, uh, on what's going on in Ukraine right now. There was a time where that was top of mind, uh, international relations in college, and then for a little while after, stayed pretty up to date on as much foreign relations, international relations as I could. But these days, a little bit outside my wheelhouse. More, more TikToks around great generals. Yeah, that's worth looking into. There's quite a few big personalities we can talk about. It's always fun. The war thunder guy. You think if Germany would not have invaded Russia, that could have changed the war. 100%. I think that, so Operation Barbarossa, when Germany shifted east and invaded the Soviet Union, that, that there's a good argument that that was the biggest mistake that Germany made in the Second World War. Um, 
They may maybe couldn't have achieved their objectives there in the first place. They might have been unrealistic from the get-go. It just chewed up manpower and resources for the rest of the war. And if you think about the number of divisions and tanks and supplies and everything that had to go east, if they could have turned that you know, south to Italy, if they could have turned that west towards France um, to help head off the Allied invasion, I think it's a totally different war, an entirely different war. Um, I don't know that the outcome is totally different. might have just taken a lot longer. One of the issues, again... When we look at Germany in the Second World War, at least my take is we have to take some some bits of what we might say is rationality out of the decision-making process. When the German leadership was looking to the East, it wasn't, there were a lot of factors, but there was also a racial piece to it. And so if they hadn't invaded the Soviet Union when they did, that type of warfare, that overall plan for the conflict was still in the cards. So maybe it would have been delayed. Maybe it would have happened, you know, years later than it actually did. But it's really hard to pull some of those things out entirely because they were just at odds with each other. Right. But in short, yeah, it's a totally different conflict. I mean, the Eastern Front chewed up German resources. Let's see. Do you think the Entente could have won without America? So World War I, um, tend to kind of use the term allies in World War I and World War II, or at least I'm guilty of that quite a bit. But the Entente was the, uh, the major um, – the, the Triple Entente, I'm sorry, was the, was the major allied – power, if you will, in World War I. So Russia, France, and Great Britain. I do think, yes, I think they could have won in World War I without the United States, but it would have gone a little bit longer. It's not that the United States showing up on the battlefield, you know, won decisive battles that ended the war or anything like that, but the U.S. entrance into the war, the fact that Germany had been in this slugfest for four years. They were running out of material. They were running out of men to draft. They're on the home front. Things were starting to get a little shaky. And then United States enters. Fresh troops, fresh material, um, ready to get into the fight, can relatively quickly get into the fight. Germany kicked off a spring offensive in 1918, kind of a last-ditch effort to try to win the war. And they put kind of all they had behind that. And it failed. I mean, it was successful in quite a few areas, but overall it failed. And by the time that offensive was wrapping up, the United States was there and that kind of sealed the end of kind of sealed the, the decision of world war one. So if the U S hadn't entered, I don't know that Germany launches that kind of desperate makes it sound less organized than it was, but it forced that offensive when maybe Germany couldn't actually pull something off like that. So without the U.S. entering, I don't know that Germany does that. It might just be another year or two of a slog fest. Eventually, I think you do see, um, I do think you see eventually the same outcome. It might've just gone on a little bit longer, but anyways, it's kind of an interesting one, right? Because it's not as though the U.S. showed up and, and ran over German forces and that called it, but Simply the fact that the U.S. was entering the war caused some decisions to be made that kind of precipitated the downfall.
World Military. I haven't done anything about the 101st at the Eagle's Nest. Fun story, we went to Europe after college, and that was one of the places we visited. And we planned the visit to spend one day in Birch's Garden so we could go up to the Eagle's Nest. And we got there at like 2 o'clock in the afternoon or something, and it was closed. So traveled all the way out there. I mean, we did a bunch of other stuff in Europe too, but that was one of the places we wanted to see. And we got there. I think it like closed at noon that day or something. So good planning by a 22-year-old. That was uh, That worked out well. Yusme Ra Ra. There's a username. Plea but Yusme, what recommendations to make it through successfully? Um, man, I don't know. Plea beer and yuck year kind of suck, to be honest. I, there was, I, for me, it was always something on the horizon, right? I mean, right now, I guess it's graduation. There's always that next thing. It was MLK, the long weekend MLK. It was President's Day. It was Christmas break. It was always something. <laughs> Had to have those small windows and just try to work towards that. It was looking forward to Christmas, looking forward to summer. For me, that helped having a lot of little things to work forward to um, and not thinking about what was coming next. Thinking about some of the classes I had to take as a yuck was intimidating. Thinking about the next time I had to take the IOCT was terrifying. So just little chunks at a time, little chunk, little chunk, little chunk, and just put your head down. I mean, it's a grind. It is, it is four years of a grind. So, um, I think one of the things that helped me most of all probably was being able to lean on the friends and the people you have around you. Um, because at the end of the day, everybody's going through pretty much the same experience, but I mean, look, plebe years come and do a close. And if you got through that, you got three more in you, man. Best of luck there. Michaela in the army. Uh, so I was in the army active duty, then the Texas national guard and the reserves today. I'm a 13 alpha field artillery officer. Busman, Japan occupying territory in the U.S. up in the uh, Aleutian Islands, right off of I think that's what you said, but up not the Aleutian Islands. I don't know why. Wait, is it the Aleutian Islands up off Alaska? Yeah, that's worth talking about. Yeah, I think it is the Aleutian Islands, but yeah, Kiska, crazy, right, right off the coast there. Marcus, let me see if you can join. No. That War Thunder guy, if Germany waited for the proper equipment, could they maybe have taken Russia? I don't know. I don't think so. The One of the challenges in Russia is getting so, so far. And, and we saw what Stalin did is they just at some point kind of started pulling their forces back a little bit, forcing Germany to come further and further into their country. And what that did was it exposed the German supply lines to what they would call partisans, right? People, kind of a, a weird mix. Some of the first, some of the first people Germany encountered when they crossed into the Soviet Union greeted Germany as liberators because they weren't super happy under Stalin. Germany, of course, quickly turned that around and, and made it very clear they were not liberators and sparked kind of some partisan activity in their rear. And the further and further and further they pushed into the Soviet Union, the longer and the, the greater those areas became that they had to secure. And they started bringing in police forces from Berlin. They, they had to have massive formations just to beat down this part because they couldn't get supplies all the way to the front. Right? These, these supply convoys would go through parts of the Soviet Union where a small gang of you know, robbers, if you will, 
um, militia, maybe is a better term, would destroy the supply convoy. And then it kind of leaves the troops out at front um, without what they needed. I don't know that that was an equipment issue. I'm not so sure that the technology at the time, the size of Germany at the time was enough to truly take on the Soviet Union in the way they did. Um, that's why when we look back at the kind of the plans around Operation Barbarossa, it just might not have been feasible regardless, especially when Germany was starting to deal with more to the West, more to the South in Italy. Um, I'm not sure it was an equipment issue. I think it was a, you know, big picture terrain logistics. I'm just not sure that at that time in history, Germany could pull that off. There you go. Dr. Nymer has a good point. The French had very low morale and were on the brink of mutiny until the U.S. joined. That's in the, I put that in the same camp of, there's got to be a better way to say that, right? It wasn't necessarily, the U.S. did have victories on the battlefield in World War I. I don't mean to, to completely bypass those, but these other factors, you know, Germany pushing the spring offensive earlier, the morale boost to all of the allies, the, you know, there's something to that in the war. And you're right. France was, who can blame them? Have you seen the losses of the French army in World War I? It's staggering. Like, it is, we don't have anything. The United States doesn't have anything like that to compare. There's no time in our history, maybe the Civil War. You can kind of start looking at the Civil War in the same context, but I'm pretty sure as a percentage of population, the losses in the Civil War were even less than what the French dealt with in the First World War. So, of course, they're on the brink of mutiny, you know? How many more years could they handle of that? The war that shouldn't, you know, going to be over by Christmas, right? Going to be over soon. You may rah-rah. Haven't had fun in a minute. Is it fun being in the big army? So, um, talking about West Point again, kind of transition from West Point to the army. Like, Yuck year is a lot better than plebe year. Cow year is better than yuck year. First year is better than all of them, right? It gets better year by year. And then as soon as you graduate, that gets better. There's something to be said right after graduation of all of a sudden being an adult, having people, uh, you know, being able to make your own decisions. You can't necessarily make it West Point, but it's a different experience. Like the army is not plebe year. The army is not yuck year. It, it gets a lot different. Um, there's going to be a lot of different challenges, but I'm guessing some of the stuff you're not a fan of, um, the normal plebe stuff, that doesn't carry on. It gets, I think it gets a lot better. But at the end of the day, the good news is, I mean, you've got one year down. You can always try another year. And as you know, if it's, if next year sucks too, and it's just not fun, then you can move on. No strings attached, right? It's kind of a benefit, but it does get better. Every little piece gets better. I think you'll be surprised too, um, day one of yuck year, or maybe the better way to say it is graduation at the end of your plebe year. Like that's a big jump up, right? So if first year is 10% better than cow year, I would say yuck year is like 80% better than plebe year. It's a big, big jump coming up here soon. Talk about Erwin Rommel. Yeah. That's a good point. I should put something together about Rommel. 
that's an interesting figure, right? Because he wasn't really on board with the overall German path, you know, pre and during World War II. But he was such a competent commander that he was able to continue on through the military. Um, feared by the Allies, rightfully so. One of the more, if not one of the most competent commanders in the German military at the time. Yeah, I'll put something together on Rommel. That's a good call. Good, good call. Airline guy, what's happening? Scoo, what are those barrage balloons for in World War II pictures? So they served a couple different purposes. The ones that we normally see in kind of the most common pictures, if you look up D-Day, for instance, there were these balloons kind of tethered to ships and on shore. They had steel cables, like pretty thick steel cables, and they were designed to prevent strafing from enemy aircraft. So the balloons would sit, you know, a couple hundred feet up. They weren't super high over the ships, but quite a ways. And there were barrage balloon battalions. So I think, I'm not exactly sure about the ones on the ships, but on shore on D-Day, it was actually a, uh, a battalion of black soldiers that came ashore. The only black battalion to come ashore on D-Day put those balloons up. And the idea was for an enemy aircraft coming to strafe, they would either have to stay way above those balloons, which would make the strafing quite a bit less effective, or dive bombing. Um, they'd have to stay above those balloons. Or if they came down below, not only did they have to deal with anti-aircraft fire, but they have to swerve in and out of those balloons and those cables, right? So even if they're able to dodge the balloon, there's these random one-inch thick or more steel cables all across, you know, on every ship almost. And one of those would just cut the aircraft in two. So it was designed to prevent strafing, low-level strafing, or uh, dive bombers when the fleet wasn't mobile. So you wouldn't really see that when a naval fleet was moving, um, but in a city or around an encampment or around a beach like D-Day at Normandy when they were unloading supplies, you'd see these balloons come up as kind of a static-type defense. Think about how scary that would be, by the way. If you're, if you're a plane coming in to attack, uh, say, the beach on D-Day as the Allies are unloading everything, having to dodge those cables. Like, I wouldn't want to go underneath those. I would do everything I could from way above. There we go. World Military. The Black Battalion is the 320th Balloon Barrage Battalion. That's a mouthful. Did a video about those guys a little while ago here on TikTok. That was a, it's a cool, cool unit. So your grandfather was in World War II on Normandy, in Normandy on D-Day. That's some impressive family history. There's not a lot of people that can say that. So that's, that's awesome. Eric Hartman, pretty sure I know who you're talking about. Let me look him up. German ace, right? Yeah, German fighter pilot. Yeah, I'll look into that. So I, I like talking about other countries' militaries as well. It's any time I step outside the U.S. military, I start to struggle just a little bit. So um, they require quite a bit more research to make sure I'm using the right terms and talking about the right things. 
That's why you don't see as much on here about other countries, even the allied countries that the U.S. fought with um, throughout history. But that's a pretty cool story there. Eric Hartman, the most successful fighter ace in the history of aerial warfare. 1,400 separate combat missions. (laughs) He crash-landed 16 times. Sounds about right. That's insane. Credited with shooting down 352 Allied aircraft. 345 Soviet planes. 352 Allied aircraft. So we talked just a few days ago about aces, right? What makes an ace? An ace was five. Shooting down five enemy aircraft. 352, we'd say he uh, he passed that a little bit. That's an interesting topic, though, when you get into, get into aces and, and planes being shot down, because each country kind of viewed it differently. Who reports it, right? There's not, there was some footage on these aircraft they could look at, but a lot of times it was the pilot's word. They'd come down and say, I shot down one plane or two planes, and you got to think, I'm not saying that this is part of Hartman's story just made me think of it. How many people thought they shot down a plane and didn't or just straight lied and said, I shot down two or I shot down one. um, And they just didn't. There wasn't a lot of ways to check that, especially in some chaotic dogfight where planes on both sides are heading off in every direction. You just can't keep track of what everybody else is doing. So interesting little tidbit when you start thinking about aces and some of these numbers of aircraft shot down, especially in World War II. Dylan, why did the Germans have so few warships? So in World War II, they had a plan. I believe it was called Plan Z, like the letter Z. Leading up to World War II, now they weren't supposed to be doing this, but they were. They wanted to build up a navy equal to the British Navy, which throughout history... If a country says we want to be on par with the British Navy, it's another way of saying we want to have the best Navy in the world. The British traditionally, at least for the last little while here, have been right up there at the top in terms of um, the best Navy in the world. Germany wanted to be on par with the British Navy, and they started to go about that. But in 1939, they actually started implementing it in 1939, in January of 39. And a few months later, they started World War II. In turn, they had to reallocate resources. So they had this great big plan of number of battleships and aircraft carriers and cruises and submarines or U-boats, all these different craft that they were going to build. And then the war kicks off. They start a war. They took all of those resources, the equipment, the, um, the, the manufacturing, the facilities, all shifted towards things like shifted towards the Army and the Air Force. So planes, tanks, machine guns, artillery, things like that. And the naval program really went on the back burner. What they kept doing was building U-boats. They were smaller, um, not necessarily, well, easier to build in the sense that they are substantially smaller than a battleship or an aircraft carrier, of course, right? So they started churning out a lot of U-boats, but never, I mean, you know, after 1939, there was kind of a peak for the German military, but before too long, they started getting factories, the the shipyards, the railheads started getting bombed by the allies. And it wasn't really feasible pretty early on to shift back to really building up their Navy. So there was a plan. World War II got in the way though.
their surface vessels were too valuable and they didn't have the fuel later in the stage of war. Yeah, Rob, good point. So they did have a Navy, right? It's not like they didn't have a Navy, but um, they had so few and fuel to your point, Rob, was such a scarce resource later in the war that, you know, what is one battleship going to do against the Royal, against the Royal Navy or, you know, later in the war, the U S Navy, hanging out in the English Channel and in the Atlantic. The U-boats were, were pretty successful throughout the conflict, but there just wasn't enough resources in the German Navy to really do much of a, like the Japanese would call a decisive battle and really, you know, a pitched fight with the enemy. So they ended up kind of sitting in harbor and ended up getting bombed in harbor uh, before the end of the war and just never really, outside of the U-boats, the German Navy just really didn't play a major major role in, uh, in World War II. Let's see if we can get one more here, and then I'm going to have to have to jump off. Let's see, do a video about the five Solden brothers. That's an awesome question because it ties in with a question from Brad here. How is Saving Private Ryan and Band of Brothers related? Maybe they don't tie in together. Um, I don't know that Saving Private Ryan and Band of Brothers uh, really were related, other than the fact that the, I don't know, the, Matt Damon is the main character, one of the main characters in uh, Saving Private Ryan was in the 101st Airborne. Outside of that, I'm not sure there's there's much of a connection. Both World War II, both have some focus on the uh, on D-Day. But yeah, the Five Sullivan Brothers is a pretty crazy story and is one of the things that, my understanding at least, helped kind of inspire the story of Saving Private Ryan. So that's, that's something worth looking into. But got to jump for now. Appreciate y'all hopping on here, and we will do this again soon. Take care. Hey, thanks for listening to War Stories. If you get a chance, it'd mean an awful lot if you could head over to Apple or Spotify or wherever you listen to your podcast and leave a review. It helps others to to find the show. But thanks again for listening. We'll see you next time.